0: Hello, I'm David Moskraw. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Let's start with a little celebration. This is the 50th episode of Open to Debate. Thanks to each and every one of you for listening. We look forward to many episodes to come. For this milestone moment, we are excited to welcome a very special guest. To help us navigate the question, what is the state of Canada's courts? Plus, as a bonus, we get into the topic of thriller novels, as well as the virtues of Stephen King. My guest in this episode of Open to Debate is the Right Honorable Beverly McLaughlin, jurist, former, and longest serving Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, and author of three books, including the upcoming thriller, Denial. Let's start with books. Uh, I'd like to talk about courts and the law, of course, but I'm, I'm curious first and foremost about your writing because you've written a prize-winning autobiography, a national best-selling thriller, and there's a follow-up novel out this fall. So I'm curious why you decided to write these books in particular after you left the Supreme Court in, in 2017.
1: Uh, well, after... That part of the question, I wrote wrote them after because I didn't think it was compatible with my job as judge and chief justice to venture into the business of uh, writing books. Although many judges have in the past, um, but I had my plate full, and I thought maybe when I retire, I'll need a new project. What will I do? I had always before I became a judge. Uh, had an idea that I would like to try my hand at fiction. It was a very foolish idea. I had no idea how difficult it is to write fiction. And I had no experience in it. I never had any training in it. But I love to read. And I had this idea for writing about a feisty young female uh, lawyer in the criminal bar uh, who uh, deals with uh, different problems. Uh, So I had never been able to pursue that during my 38 or so years as a judge. Uh, When I retired, I said, well, uh, I will uh, see what comes of it. I never really expected it to get published, but I had a lot of fun kind of putting together the first draft, which uh, you won't be surprised, uh, required an enormous amount of editing. I was... uh, Fortunate to find an agent, uh, and then he found a publisher. and then the real work started because they started to work with me and said look, there's there's a novel in here somewhere, but there's a lot too much. And uh, so we edited uh, and I got a lot of help uh, from them in terms of ideas. I mean, it's all mine, but uh, they would say, "Well, what about this and what about that? And I'd rethink it. So that was a huge learning experience. Answering your question, I did it because it was, Something I'd always hankered after, and I thought, now I'm retired, why not try it?
0: It, you know, did you know that William F. Buckley did sort of the same thing? It's sort of stun- somewhat stunning to me. To, uh, years ago, reading his interview in the Paris Review, and he was talking about he was writing spy thrillers while he was doing all the rest of his work. And, and it, it makes me wonder if, if there isn't something among so many of us to want to have a different sort of creative expression and creative outlet that we, we have to sort of set aside but uh, eventually return to. But I, I'm, I'm sort of slightly relieved to hear that someone of your pedigree and accomplishments felt the same sort of, was it devastation staring down a first draft?
1: that's a good term (laughs) maybe a bit strong in my case because they were very very encouraging uh they never said this is terrible and i did find a a publisher uh but it was a sense of oh my gosh uh i really didn't understand what i was uh, attempting to do and there's a lot of work to be done and 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 a big learning curve but it was fun
0: well, we've done 50. This is our 50th episode. It's a very special episode for us. I think of all the advice that has been offered by all the, the guests, this uh, that, that bit of advice, or implicit, uh, to push through the first draft, I think might be really the most valuable <laughs> for so many of our listeners who have probably been there after a first draft.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: I'm curious where the ideas in the in the thrillers, in particular, come from. Uh, do you draw on your experience as a judge uh, on, on stories you've heard uh, of, of anecdotes? I mean, where does the the where do the characters and the plot line come from?
1: Well, there's a lot of questions there, but it really it has to come from inside you because there's no other source, right? Uh, and and one lives and one goes through different experiences and. People stay with you, characters stay with you. Of course, you cannot simply take a character out of your life experience and then transpose them into fiction. But there there are aspects. So there's nobody in my novels whom I could say I was describing somebody I knew. There's no situation where I say I was describing a situation that I lived through. But there are aspects of it. Uh, that I then take up and play with and develop in a fictional way. Uh, But everything has to come from within you. And I think that this is why I'm so lucky. Uh, I've had such a full and rich life. And during my career in the law in particular, I met so many people. And as a judge, I saw so many conflict situations. And uh, I always was so interested in the psychology behind the people and why they got into the situation where that they got into and what was really motivating them. And so as a judge and a lawyer, this was always going on in my brain. I couldn't help it. And, uh, and so when I came to write, I had uh, that experience to draw on as I created my fictional situations and characters.
0: You mentioned that the characters stay with you, and I've, I, I've written a, a nonfiction book, but I wrote a novel about a year and a half ago. It's with my agent now, and I found that in that process, the characters became a sort of part of my world, that they were following me around a little bit, and there'd even be moments where I think, you know, I really hate this guy, or I really <laughs> like this woman. There's something about this woman that I really like. Yeah. They take on a life of their own. Did you find that these this characters started following you around a little bit?
1: Yeah, they lead you around, actually, because, as you say, they take on a life of their own. And this is the amazing thing about any creative process. I think when you start off, you don't have a clear idea of exactly what's going to develop. I know there are some novelists who plot everything out, mm-hmm. but they can't have an idea of exactly how the words and the conversations are going to be uh, work out in advance. They simply can't. Uh, so what happens is that the character takes over and you start speaking through that person's voice and that person's mind. And if that doesn't happen, I think it's, it's not a good fiction book uh, because uh, it's going to sound wooden and contrived and so on. The best books are ones where you know that the character has taken over uh, the author's a corner, at least, of the author's mind.
0: I, I absolutely agree and i'm gonna i'm gonna push on to courts in a in a moment because I, I can just hear listeners saying, Dave, you can't spend the whole time talking about <laughs> your the things you happen to like you've but i am curious if you are a, a thriller and a or a mystery a a whodunit reader because it is by far my favorite genre, and sometimes people say to me they're the, the sort of surprise that this is what I read, but it is the most enjoyable thing to read. Are you a big thriller fan?
1: Yeah, I always have been. Um, now, I, I always like to make sure that whatever I'm reading, if it's not well-written, I, I don't pursue it. Uh, but uh, if it's well-written, it keeps you engaged. Uh, you like the characters or you hate them, but you are into them and their dilemmas, uh, then it's, then then you want to uh, read more. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm a big thriller fan. It was always a, a great... Diversion, as I was working on so many other things, um, didactic problems, writing judgments, and so on. Um, to just uh, before I went to bed at night, spend an hour or so with a thriller, or when I was traveling or on a plane, um, and uh, it's it gives you a great deal of satisfaction to see how they how things work out. And uh, I've been a big fan of. I started off being a big fan of some of the English writers like P.D. James mm. and so on, and then. Um, uh, enlarged my genre, but I think the thriller is 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 a great genre and and much maligned, uh, and that is why people coming back keep coming back to it because it allows you to explore problems. I I use my to books to explore legal problems and problems that people face in their life and it's another way of talking about the justice system Uh, so it's satisfying on a lot of levels it's not simply uh, a very shallow exercise in a series of events uh, that lead to a surprising ending Uh, a good thriller is, is should be and must be richer than that and I always believe the test is in the readers I mean I know there are lots of genres of literature that are writing that have a large readership that you and I probably wouldn't want to read. Uh, But but if you set off to write something that's quasi serious, I think your test is going to be in how many people really want to read it and what do they think about it when they read it and has it enriched them? Has it deepened their uh, understanding of life? I think you can do all that in a thriller.
0: I think so too. And, and the psychological aspect to me is, as you mentioned, is critical. And, you know, there are moments where I would read someone like Ruth Ware and think, or or, or P.D. James, f- for that matter, you know, that the British tradition, especially, and think that yeah. it is a remarkable thing to be able to keep somebody on the hook for 300 pages and then surprise them. I mean, that does, that isn't easy to do. <laughs> as you know, having having written, it's not an easy thing to
1: do. Yeah, It's very difficult. And, and, and then you, you know, you have to drop the clues along the way. There's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into it, which um, I, I was part of my learning experience Uh, and then uh, going over just to meticulously try to make sure that all the details jibe and all the timelines and things like that. There's a lot of work in, in, in doing this. Uh, And, uh, but, but, uh, But it's well well worth it. I think it's quite... And that's what readers like. They want to be able to... Different readers want different things. But I'm amazed at how uh, quite a large number of readers are very meticulous about, you know, this clue was there, that clue was there. Why didn't I think of that? This ending wasn't really a surprise to me, or it was. uh, And uh, where those surprise endings come from... Uh, is is something that mystifies even me because when I start off to write, I I, I don't I, in both the novels I've written, I don't really know exactly how it's going to end up, and and in the end, I I think uh, I've been able to contrive a surprise ending. No spoilers here. <laughs> and the one coming up Uh, but uh, it just comes out of nowhere but it comes out of the characters too it comes out of the characters and you keep peeling away different layers right and then boom there's a surprise I hadn't realized that about this character and about the situation
0: have you read uh, Stephen King's book on writing
1: yes I love that book that's one of my favorite books it's it is so good,
0: yeah. and I, I just I keep thinking of his his line from that book that he likes to put interesting characters in 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 tough situations and watch them try to get out right, which is such a yeah. great description of, of 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 writing as you go rather than plotting everything out. You just create these people and then see what happens.
1: Yeah, that's exactly my experience. And although I don't do it with the excellence, I'm sure of Stephen King. Uh, I
0: mean, who does? I. I uh... There's a line from *Salem's Lot* that sort of stuck with me for years. It's something to the effect of like the 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 culmination of all horror is a jo- is a is a door slightly ajar, <laughs> you know. And oh, then the, the, no. this guy can just he he can he, he can compress so much into these books. It's, it's totally astounding yeah. to me. Yeah. I, I'd better I'd better start talking about courts before I get myself in trouble because I could talk about thrillers all day. <laughs> um, I'd like to turn to courts, though, and and to uh, both your career and the state of courts in Canada uh, contemporarily. Uh, You spent nearly 30 years on the Supreme Court, uh, the majority of of them as Chief Justice, and I'm curious how you'd characterize the evolution of the courts in this country, and and I'd like to start with the courts in politics. Uh, I sometimes say that we have many nice things in this country because of the courts, uh, perhaps for better, perhaps for worse, but but that I believe is true. And I'm curious how you conceive of the judicial function in this country, and how and, and whether politicians perhaps rely too heavily on the courts uh, for what becomes perhaps de facto uh, policy making.
1: Well, here's how I see it: we have under our constitution uh, three branches of governance. I didn't say government; I said governance. The the first and and seminal branch is, of course, Parliament and in the provincial sphere, the legislatures. Uh, This is where the elected representatives uh, debate the issues, make the laws, etc. The second branch is the executive, which is the prime minister and cabinet, and then all the way down to all the government agencies and so on that carry out the laws. And the uh, third branch is the judicial branch, much smaller, much more modest, but essential to democratic governance, uh, because uh, the role of the judges, the role of the courts under the Constitution, I'm talking Section 96 of our BNA Act, is uh, and the common law tradition is to ensure uh that justice is done uh, and that the laws that parliament passes and the acts that the executive take are, are in conformity with the most fundamental law, which is the constitution. And with all those principles of common law justice that are make our system so 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 rich and make our justice system actually just. And if you don't have that judicial role, uh, you don't have uh, uh, an assurance that the laws are actually going to conform to the Constitution. So any person in Canada can look at a law that Parliament has passed and say, I think it's unconstitutional for whatever reason, or the French's Charter of Rights or whatever, and they can go to a court and they can tell that to a judge and the judge judge will decide yes or no, and it can go through the appeal process and get to the Supreme Court of Canada where you'll have a final decision. So when you think about it, it ensures, and the same can happen for executive acts. So it ensures that the whole system is operating within the sphere of constitutionality. And of course, then the courts also have a very large dispute resolution role, which is and criminal law role and that kind of thing in judging cases, disputes between the crown and the individual, which is the criminal Law in in many cases, and, and usually almost always the crown versus whoever is alleged to have done the criminal act, and also civil uh, civil disputes. And uh, so, in in these those are the functions of the courts to to resolve disputes to ensure that that uh, constitutional norms are maintained in governance. Uh, and there there may be others, but those are the principal principal roles
0: and yet the court does in some ways sort of track with the broader society. I mean there's a quotation of yours I quite like that you know I think the court belongs to the Canadian people and it should reflect the Canadian people. And that makes me think of of graduate school seminars. I would sit in on this, where you know professors would routinely say the court doesn't have an army. You know, the court um, you know h- tracks somewhat with with the broader country, and it has to, in some ways, at least circuitously justify itself to the broader country. And I'm curious if you if you see that court as 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 leading public opinion as following it as as reflecting the country back i think of evolution on for instance uh, same sex marriage or on medical assistance and dying i mean to what degree does the court evolve as the country evolves
1: uh, well i think the court uh, does does um, have a a function and a duty to uh re- reflect uh, uh current thinking, but the evolution is not really a deliberate one. It's not like the court a court says, well, okay, today we're going to uh, resolve uh, the law on this particular issue, uh, be it same-sex marriage or assistance with dying. The court doesn't have an agenda, unlike politicians. It simply takes the cases that people bring, and of course the people bring the cases that matter to them as society is evolving. So the court then has to get on that bandwagon and it has to look at the questions that are popping up. And so we saw during my time on the Supreme Court, uh, issues uh, coming to the fore that had never really come to the fore before, partly because of the, uh, under the charter, which granted uh, a new avenue to explore them, but indigenous issues. Uh, started coming to the courts in the late 80s and continued throughout the 90s and so on. And the uh, uh, indigenous groups, who probably felt they weren't getting very far, just asking parliament or whatever to do whatever they wanted, decided to go to court. And uh, under Section 35 of the uh, Constitution Act passed in 1982, they had a provision that guaranteed their rights, so they they litigated that, and through all of these cases, which was fascinating work for me, um, a legal structure uh, emerged and rights were vindicated, and uh, and and indigenous people uh, found a new route to uh, have their rights recognized, not only by the courts, first instance by the courts, but then. Uh, by uh, Parliament and other people who took took these new rights up and worked with them. So uh, in this way, uh, new issues as society evolves, these were old issues, but as, as it was evolving, they were just coming to the fore at the time of the Indigenous, come before the courts. And the same applies to other issues like uh, LGBTQ plus rights to um, uh, uh, liberty in uh, issues to uh, rights, uh, procedural rights, uh, uh, fairness rights in a trial, a right to a fair trial. Uh, But these things all took on new kind of, this is the problem we have today, and Mm -hmm. this is the problem the citizens are concerned about. So they're bringing it to the courts. So this ensures that The judges have to deal with contemporary problems, and it's they don't plan it that way, but they end up sometimes uh, they end up definitely reflecting society. And uh, I I doubt I'd use the word leading it, but they end up reflecting it and uh, putting into force the uh, the the sorts of or or dealing with the sorts of issues that litigants want dealt with. At
0: the same time, the court has sort of entered the, the popular consciousness, I think, in, a, in a, perhaps a different, more more present way than in the past. And, and I think your years as Chief Justice have, have marked a lot of that, that passage. And I'm curious about what you think of, of recent efforts to make the court more accessible and transparent. Things, for instance, like a Twitter account – you know, opened in 2015, plain uh, plain language summaries, question yeah. and answer sessions with the media and the Chief Justice. Uh, are these help, Are these helping Canadians get familiar with the court? Are they helping with accessibility and transparency?
1: Well, I believe they're good. I I worked on all of the initiatives you've just mentioned and tried to make the court more open and accessible. And I gave a lot of speeches where I talked to uh, the press, public interest groups and so on and said, this is this is what your court is. We are your court, as you said a moment ago. We're the, and and this is the work we're doing, and this is how we go about it. And I want to listen to you too and hear what you have to say. So um, so this, uh, I believe, the court does belong to the people, and and they and and we live in a, in an era when transparency uh, and accountability are absolutely essential to maintaining public trust in an institution. Now, the courts aren't accountable in the sense that the judges can be elected and and fired and that kind of thing, because that would be inconsistent with uh, ju- uh, the appearance and the reality, perhaps, of judicial uh, impartiality. Uh, you, you can't have a judge making rulings because they fear that if they made if they, if, if they go a certain way, uh, they'll be fired. So judges of independence. But uh, within that, uh, we have to be accountable. And judges are accountable by their reasons, by uh, their public interface, as you just mentioned, and, and various other ways. But there, it is essential to be accountable. And I always felt that as Chief Justice, and I, I tried very hard to to be accountable in ways that were con- uh, compatible with the judicial function.
0: Uh, what about diversity? I mean, this was something that that you've worked on. It's something I think there's a growing consciousness uh, about which in, throughout the country – uh, I'm wondering what how you would assess the sort of state of representational and, and substantive progress that we've made in the past, say, three or four decades, on on ensuring diversity on the bench, uh, not just at the Supreme Court, but throughout the court system, and 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 perhaps what's left to do.
1: Well, uh, we've made a lot of progress. I started practicing law at the beginning of the night, of the '70s. It was called to the bar in '69, and uh, this was in there were there were very few, if any women on the bench. There were no, uh, uh, very few uh, people uh, who were not uh, uh, of Caucasian ancestry. Um, it was very much uh, a select group of men of a certain uh, age who had had a certain career at the bar uh, who were then appointed. And there was a, Monolith, this, a monolithic uh, viewpoint that often came from that. Uh, and uh, so, and people like me as a young woman lawyer if, uh, faced all male benches all the time, all the time, never a woman. Usually the other lawyers were all male. It was uh, a very different world than it is now. So uh, we have made great progress. The first step in the 80s, uh, late 70s was the appointment of many, many more women uh, uh, to our uh, benches. Uh, and uh, that has gone quite well, although women, I think still, the last that I saw, only about 30, 38 uh, percent uh, were uh, of, of judges in Canada, uh, uh, federally appointed judges were women, I may have that statistic wrong, but it, it hovers around 30, 33, 35, in, the, in that mid to high, I think now, range for women. Uh, the current focus is the need to get more ethnic diversity on the bench, which which I think is, uh, very important as well. I believe it's important that uh, Canada, uh, that people see themselves reflected uh, in the institutions that make decisions about their lives. And Canada is no longer a white people's country. It never was. Uh, we always had many minorities and we had overlooked often, tragically, our hugely Important indigenous uh, population, but but so this model of aging white men sitting in judgment uh, just doesn't work anymore. And and people of all groups need to see themselves reflected. Now, of course, on on an institution like the Supreme Court of Canada, only have nine judges, and we have there's there's a limited possibility to get every. Uh, ethnic group uh, you can't on the on the, on the court, but there needs to be um, uh, a diversity of groups. And I'm looking forward also to I'm sure it's going to happen that there will be an indigenous judge uh, in the in the next years to come on the Supreme Court of Canada. But we're seeing uh, indigenous people take up very important roles in in the practice of law in academe, legal academe. Uh, we're seeing them on the bench more and more. And and so it's just a matter of time before we see uh, that on the Supreme Court of Canada. But it's also important to bring a, a perspectives of all these different groups, you get a richer mix, and you ensure that you're not looking at an issue from only one perspective. As a woman on a court on courts, uh, I, I really am convinced that There were cases, not all of them, but occasionally cases where uh, the perspective I had as a woman uh, mattered, Mm -hmm. and I could explain that to my male counterparts, and that then entered the discussion, right? So we need that perspective. We need that richness that comes from all, all parts of Canadian society on our courts.
0: One one of the things that I've found in the years that I've been trying to listen more, pay attention to, to different perspectives, take them in, is that not only do you not know things, you don't know what you don't know. Right? And if you don't have someone who can come at, a, at things from a different perspective and tell you, Here's, here are the things you don't even know that you don't know, uh, then it's hard to uh, to agenda set in a way that represents the country, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. You're absolutely
0: correct. I want to think about that a little bit, uh, turning to issues that have been taken up by the courts in the past and will will almost certainly be taken up by them for many years to come. I'm curious what issues you think stand out as particularly pressing uh, for the country uh, right now and and how the courts might approach them. You know, indigenous reconciliation and the treaty process uh, comes to mind. Hate speech comes to mind. Misinformation, disinformation. I mean, do you think... uh, how do you think the courts might have started to approach these issues in the years to come?
1: Well, I can't predict uh, how how they will pr- approach them or even what the issues will be, but it seems that we have certain vectors that are driving um, the future. I'm not sure how, and, and one way or another, they, they will probably uh, produce problems that will come before the court. Uh, one, which is getting more attention now uh, is uh, the free speech guarantee in our charter and how that plays out uh, in a digital world of internet mm-hmm. where you have dominance uh, by several uh, big companies, but where every person can get online and uh, or Twitter and, and say presumably whatever they want and how are, we, how are we going to deal with the harmful effects of the, of that uh, while maintaining uh, freedom of speech, which is, in my view, absolutely essential to the maximum degree. So there's a balance here that's going to have to be worked out. We see parliament now addressing it. I think issues will come before the court either as, as, as people test the laws that parliament passes uh, on internet regulation and hate speech and things like that uh, or as as people find other ways to bring them before the courts. So uh, this is one area where I think we'll see a lot of uh, judicial activity and development. Uh, I think we'll see more possibly on the environment, although a lot of that tends to be dealt with on the administrative law side of things through agencies and so on. But um, these issues are going to be very important. Indigenous issues will continue to be very important. Um, Equality issues will be very important. We have worked for a long time on equality in Canada, but we're still not there. And, uh, and, uh, whether you're talking women's issues, uh, race issues, uh, we see our society fomenting now. Uh, about and in on many issues that have equality at their base, and those things remain really, really important uh, and will remain for the future um, issues that are coming before the court uh,
0: uh, i 'm thinking about, you know in, in different ways that these these issues are being worked out and, and they're being worked out both in the courts and in the streets and in Parliament and and sub-nationally and so on and so forth one interesting uh, potential x factor variable is the notwithstanding clause uh, we've seen it used in Ontario for the first time very recently and I'm curious if, if whether or not you you see new norms emerging on section thirty three and, and and how might that shape courts for for years to come?
1: Well, uh, I hope they're not norms. Uh, I hope it's an episodic thing this recourse uh, because it's it's a very serious thing uh, for uh, a government to say, we are going to override the fundamental law uh, for the country and the provinces laid down in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The notwithstanding clause is there, and as a jurist, of course, a former jurist, uh, I respect it, uh, but I, I would say it's a very serious thing to actually use it And there must be accountability. And the politician who uses it has to be accountable to the public in the sense they have to go to the public and say, uh, we've decided to take your rights away for five years. Uh, And that's supposedly the check. I hope it doesn't become routine that the public just gives a big yawn and says, well, so what? I mean, people need to care about their rights and they need to send that message to their politicians. We care about our rights and we don't think that they should be lightly overridden. There must be very good justification for doing it. That's my philosophy on Section 33. It's there. We have to respect it. But there should be good justification, a very strong justification for using it.
0: It's the uh, it's the accountability bit that worries me the most uh, mm-hmm. because it isn't as if, I mean, my background uh, specialty with my PhD is the psychology of political decision-making. And it's not like voters are walking around caring about single issues all that much, right, to the point where it determines their vote choice. And I worry that normalizing Section 33 will allow politicians to get away with it because people just won't cast their ballot based on you know the use of section 33 especially doesn't affect them in a in a tangible way right
1: yeah well we all worry about that and uh and uh we 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 can only hope uh that uh, that citizens will take their rights very seriously and there are a lot who do mm-hmm. uh and and that we never get to the stage where uh, recourse to section 33 is normalized that there must always be justification for it and very good justification um and that's that's all that can be said on the matter it would be very sad if it became normalized
0: yeah i very much agree and 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 also the need to we need to pressure our politicians to respect forbearance right i mean we've seen what happens globally when forbearance slips we've seen it in the united states for instance and Mm -hmm. i worry a great deal that it will start to slip here too um, mm-hmm. uh, in in our closing minutes there's a couple of things i want to touch on the first is is life after the supreme court uh, not not just yours but of former justices in in general and and what they ought to do and perhaps what they ought not to do i mean there's there's recently been some cases where former justices have been uh, giving an legal advice, high profile, uh, legal advice and issues. And I'm curious if you see this as a constructive practice or whether or not there should be some limits to that.
1: Um, well, uh, you know, uh, I, I, certainly, uh, think it's, it's, uh, the right and can be constructive for someone who retires, uh, from a court at a relatively young age. We're all living longer. These people have a huge amount of, of expertise and knowledge and, and can constructively help um, clients uh, uh, with their legal issues. And to deny them the right to work in their field would be a very serious thing. Uh, but I think... Uh, the people uh, i have i have not chosen to i have chosen not to become a lawyer but i am uh because i didn't feel personally i wanted to really go back there i was there once but i remain involved in the legal world in dispute resolution and in a lot of uh, pro bono uh, access to justice kind of uh, projects that i'm working on you cannot be a fully engaged lawyer or judge one day and then say, I'll never look at the law again. But when you do whatever you're doing, be it practice, be it dispute resolution, I think you you also cannot shed the skin you wore as a judge entirely. Uh, And you have to uh, be sure that you don't uh, use the fact that you were a judge as some sort of Trump over another lawyer, for example, who was not a judge. And uh, you have to keep that level playing field. You're now back uh, practicing law or dispute resolving or whatever it is, but you don't uh, trade on the fact that you were once a judge. That's my view. And I think that the people who are doing this are very aware of that and uh and that uh, that's fine. Uh, what we don't want to have happen is uh, judges uh, somehow uh, saying, I'm retiring and now I'm going to use the fact that I'm a judge to, to uh, give myself uh, some sort of edge. I'm better than my uh, legal opponent because I was a judge. That kind of thing would be distasteful and I think basically unfair because the courts have to be leveled level playing fields and of course most if you if you're a judge there's general rule you don't appear in court on uh any court uh below um or or to to the court you sat on Mm. uh and so if you're on the Supreme Court of Canada you're never going to appear in court again but you can give legal advice and help people
0: as we approach time I'd like to close on this question uh what do the years ahead hold for you more thrillers
1: I don't know. I have one coming out, and i never I never predict uh, uh, what's going to come down the track. I love writing and and I would like to uh, I would like to uh, continue to do. It seems that my life is is not full without writing. when I was a judge, I enjoyed very much writing the judgments and opinions that I did as well as articles from time to time. And, and papers, uh, I find that I'm a bit addicted to it. So I think whatever <laughs> happens, I'll continue writing of some sort. Um, and um, and I'm also enjoying uh, a lot of um, uh, public service work now. I'm on a number of public, um, rather, um, shall I say, charitable uh, and legally uh, oriented uh, boards and uh, of organizations that are trying to make Canada a better place, uh, and and as a judge, I couldn't give back that much in that way. And now I'm I'm freer to do it, and so I really am enjoying giving my time uh, to access to justice organizations, uh, to uh, organizations that are trying to make uh, help. Uh, Uh, people caught up in the justice system, women and children in particular, Indigenous people and so on, and trying to, from the sidelines, uh, do what I can in concert with others to uh, make Canada's justice system as good as it can be. Because it has to be there to serve the men, women and children of our country if we want to remain economically viable, but more important, if we want to remain the, the kind of country Uh, we would like to be, which is admired around the world for fairness and equity. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I'm really enjoying doing that.
0: Well, that is a a perfect note on which to end as as we approach time. So uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining me on this 50th and very special episode of Open to Debate. I appreciate it so much.
1: Well, thank you, David. It's been a great pleasure. I enjoyed it.
0: Uh, the pleasure's been all mine. And as always, thank you to Mira Ahmad, Aaron Reynolds, and Carolyn Smith who make this show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. Uh, thanks to everyone who ha- has uh, stuck with us through 50 episodes. We're going to take a summer break, be back in the fall, uh, and here's to another 50 after that, and 50 after that, and so on, until, who knows, until I um, someday can spend my days reading thrillers and even writing them. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you again soon.
1: Hey, I'm Jody Butts, host of At Risk, a podcast show on the 2020 network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. risk is about better understanding the role of risk in our everyday lives and how best to manage it. I speak with interesting Canadians like astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, Olympian Haley Wickenheiser, entrepreneur Tarek Haddad, and Canada's 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Do you really care about something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? you can find At Risk on your favorite podcast app or on the 2020 network. Thanks for listening.